sure you've noticed this. I was at Walmart, uh, literally, I believe it was the day after Halloween. So Halloween has come and gone, and I'm at Walmart, and uh, I walk in the store, and lo and behold, there is a whole entire section of Christmas decorations and uh, glitz and glimmer, and uh, it's very obvious that the Christmas season, at least according to Walmart, was upon us. And not only that, but uh, what did I hear playing uh, on the PA system in Walmart. What do you think it was? It was Christmas music. It's Christmas music. Now, to me, uh, I don't necessarily appreciate the early commercialism, right, or consumerism, if you will. However, if you know me, you know very much so that I do appreciate the early Christmas music, right? I'm not opposed to that. We could play it all throughout the year. I love Christmas music, and I love this time of year in part because of it. Now, one of the things to me that is uh, makes Christmas music so meaningful and so significant, uh, significant is the depth in which many of the Christmas songs and hymns speak about the person and the work of Jesus. One of the chief themes that you will notice if you pay attention with Christmas hymns and songs is the truth that Jesus was born as a king. That he came to earth as a king. So just think about it with me briefly. Think about how often we sing this truth at Christmas time. So, for instance, in the hymn, uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, we sing this. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king, right? Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. Not only that, but uh, we Hear and hark the herald angels sing, we proclaim. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn, what? King, right? Right? Joy to the world begins with this familiar refrain. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king, right? In the third verse of the first Noel, we sing this. And by the light of that same star, three wise men came from country far to seek a king was their intent and to follow the star wherever it went. And of course, we sing uh, in that particular song a familiar chorus, Noel, 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 born is the king of Israel, right? It's throughout the psalms and the hymns that we sing at Christmas, and these examples could be multiplied, really, over and over and over again. And here's the point that I want us to ponder this morning. Do we really think of Jesus, and do we really see Jesus as a king? Do we see him as the king of the world? Do we see him as the king of Israel? And if he is a king, what type of kingdom is he a king over? Is he a political king, an earthly king? Is he a spiritual or heavenly king? Finally, if Jesus is a king over a kingdom, what does it mean for us who are followers of Christ, to be his subject. In other words, what does it look like for him to be king of me? Well, this Christmas season, we will be looking at the birth of Jesus, the birth of the king, out of the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll be using it really as a segue into what will be both a winter and a spring sermon series focused on the Gospel of Matthew, entitled, The King and His Kingdom. The King and his kingdom, the gospel of Matthew. 
So before we dive into what will serve for us as an introduction to the Gospel of Matthew, I'm going to ask you to pray, and our musicians will come, and we are going to sing songs, Christmas songs, songs that focus our hearts and minds on this central truth in the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus is born a king. So would you pray with me as we prepare to sing these songs? Father, We are so very grateful for this particular time of year where we ponder the amazing truth that you would send your son down to become one of us. That the King of kings and the Lord of lords, uh, God eternal, would take on humanity to become one of us to save us from our sins. Father, we are so grateful for this most precious gift at Christmas time. Jesus, we want to honor you as our king and sing about you and give you glory as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So be well pleased with our singing now, we pray. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. Let's stand and sing, church. Well, good morning again. Hey, if you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them at this point in time and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, it's the first book in your New Testament, pretty easy to find. And uh, if you would look with me at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1, as we begin with an introduction uh, to the book of Matthew and our sermon series, The King and His Kingdom, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Again, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I think Matthew lays out uh, the point of his gospel at the very beginning, his theological emphasis uh, revealing that Jesus is the King of kings and the King of Israel, the promised Messiah. Verse 1 reads this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Would you pray with me this morning, church? Father, we are very grateful again to be here together as Christians, as followers of your son, to learn more about him. Help us, we pray, as we um, just get an overview, a survey, a bird's eye view of this wonderful gospel of Matthew which has so much to teach us about the person and work of Jesus, in particular, his kingship and his kingdom. So help us, we pray, through your spirit, to receive your word by faith, to then live it by faith for your glory, for our joy. We ask it in the name of Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, this morning I want to do uh, an introduction to the Gospel of Matthew, helping us wrap our heads and wrap our hearts around this Gospel by discovering, first of all, who wrote it. That is, who is the author of the Gospel of Matthew? Number two, to whom it was written and why? That is, its audience and its purpose. What is unique about this Gospel? That is, its distinctives. And then, uh, how it was written. That is, its structure. And all along the way, we will see why each of these things, its audience, its authorship, its purpose, its structure, why that matters for you and I today. So let's begin with the question of authorship. Who do you think wrote the Gospel of Matthew? Are you ready? Who do you think wrote it? Matthew. Very good. You guys are great. Yes, the Gospel according to Matthew. So the question then becomes, which Matthew are we referring to? Well, the evidence both from within the book 
and from outside the book reveals to us that the Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew is none other than the Jewish tax collector turned follower of Jesus that we see portrayed in the Gospels, one of the twelve apostles. That Matthew is the author, the human author of this Gospel. Several early church fathers referred to Matthew, this particular Matthew, as its writer. And there is a consensus among the early church that they universally accepted this Matthew to be the writer of this particular gospel. So the um, evidence from outside of the book, if you will, points towards Matthew being its author. But there is an abundance, really, of evidence from within the book itself that points to this particular Matthew. I just want to share a few of those um, uh, points of evidence with you. First of all, in this gospel, there are more references to money. More references to money in different types of money. You see coins on the slide behind me. Uh, More references to money in different types of money in this gospel of Matthew than in any other gospel. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because it lends uh, evidence to the fact that Matthew, a tax collector, right, was the one who wrote this gospel. We also see really bleeding throughout the pages of Matthew, uh, Matthew's humility. He was one who is called uh, from a position of low esteem, if you will, to be a follower of Christ. And I think we see his humility all throughout this book. Just a couple of uh, examples. First of all, Matthew uh, calls himself in his gospel, Matthew the tax collector. Matthew the tax collector. So let me ask you, do you think that it, if, a, if a Jewish person wanted to make themselves look good in the eyes of their brothers, that they would call themselves a tax collector? And the answer is no. We see his humility here. He, he identifies himself uh, with a profession of, let's just say, objectionable connotations, right? Whereas the other gospel writers simply call him by name. They simply call him Matthew or sometimes Levi. So we see his humility here, I think. Uh, We also see that Matthew, when he refers to this party, this feast that he gave for Jesus, if you recall, right? Uh, He uh, came to follow Jesus and he throws a party for Jesus. And and Matthew simply calls this event a dinner. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, he's, he's being humble here. Uh, He simply calls it a dinner, while Luke, in chapter 5, calls it a great banquet. That is, Luke tells us a little bit more of the story. He says that it was a lavish party, showing that Matthew was a man of means. He was a man of wealth. But Matthew just simply says, you know what? It was just a dinner. It was just a dinner that I gave for Jesus. All of these things point us to the fact that this Matthew is the author. So what does that matter for me and you? What does it matter that we matter that we know that this Matthew is the Matthew who recorded this gospel for us? Well, it matters because we can be sure that this is a first-hand account of Jesus's teachings and his life. See, friends, Matthew was there. He was there. He heard the sermon on the mount while he was sitting on the mountainside. He ate the very fish and bread that Jesus multiplied in his hands. He tasted it. He ate it. He saw it. He was in the boat when Jesus walked on the water and calmed the storm. He was there. Friends, this gospel is a gospel account that we can trust by God's divine inspiration. It distinguishes it from other so-called gospels. 
And I use that in quotations for a reason, which purports a false view of the person and work of Jesus and have become popular subjects for books and movies and news sources as of late. So friends, it matters who wrote this book because we can trust its source. Number two, its audience and its purpose. To whom was the gospel of Matthew written and why? Who did Matthew write to if there was an audience? And why did he write to them? Well, these answers, the answers to these questions really are, really are related to one another as the why of Matthew's writing helps us actually to answer the who of Matthew's writing. See, we're not told in the gospel itself who it is written to, so we have to infer it. We have to infer it from the content and the context of the gospel. But thankfully, Matthew leaves us all sorts of clues, right? He gives us all sorts of convincing clues, uh, pieces of evidence, distinctives, if you will, that make it crystal clear, in my opinion, uh, who he wrote to and why. So before we get to some of those distinctives, I'd like to share with you uh, some of uh, uh, a, a purpose statement, if you will. Um, uh, President of Dallas Theological Seminary, Dr. Mark Bailey, uh, he is uh, an expert in the Gospels, and this is his purpose statement on the screen behind me for the Gospel, and it speaks to both whom it was written to and why. He says this. He says, Matthew recorded selected events from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in order to, number one, in order to confirm to a Jewish audience that Jesus was indeed the messianic king. And, number two, to explain the kingdom program of God for the present age in light of Israel's rejection of her king. Now, there's quite a bit there, so let's read it again and we'll we'll work our way through it. Matthew recorded selected events from the life and ministry of Jesus in order to, number one, confirm to his Jewish audience that Jesus was really uh, the, the Messiah, that he really was the Messianic King. And number two, to explain God's kingdom program for the present age in light of what we see in all of the Gospels, in particular in Matthew, Israel's rejection of her Messiah King. So three points here. First of all, Matthew recorded selected events. Selected events. In other words, he, like all of the other gospel writers, chose specific miracles, specific healings, specific interactions, and specific teachings of Jesus to further his emphasis, to further his point. In fact, John in his gospel tells us something to the effect that if all of the, of the teachings and activities of Jesus could be recorded. Uh, there wouldn't be enough books in all of the world to record that. So what we know is that here in Matthew, the things that Matthew records for us for the, in the life and the ministry of Jesus are for a purpose, right? Selected events. Number two, the thing that stands out uh, from this purpose statement is that Matthew writes originally for a Jewish audience, that is, answering the question, to whom did Matthew write? He writes to a Jewish audience audience. Number one, he wrote to an unbelieving Jewish audience, to his brothers and sisters, his fellow Jews, because he wanted them to believe as he had that Jesus was indeed their promised Messiah, their messianic king. Most likely, we don't know for sure, if you want to take a look at the timeline behind me, most likely Matthew writes uh, between 50 and 60 um, AD. Hopefully we can have that on the screen. Next, maybe. Glenn? Possibly? There we go. Oh, not, maybe it's not there. He writes between 50 and 60 AD. 
It's okay, Glenn. Go ahead and back up. Between 50 and 60 AD. And that is important for really one reason. It's important because some 20 years after the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, these are the group of Jewish people that Matthew writes to. In other words, the group of people that didn't see Messiah in person. They didn't have an opportunity to respond to him in person. And so this is the generation, this is the group to which Matthew writes. But he not only writes to Jews who don't believe, but he certainly writes to Jewish Christians who do believe, who do believe in Jesus as their Messiah King. And he writes to them to reaffirm the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one. And he gives them an account of Jesus's life for their own discipleship, for their own spiritual benefit, and for their own spiritual growth. And in doing so, he actually answers, I think, many questions that a Jewish Christian in the first century would have. Many questions that they would have about Jesus and the kingdom, which leads to our third point. Matthew's aim was twofold. Matthew's aim was twofold, right? First, he writes to confirm that Jesus was indeed the messianic king. So Matthew in his gospel takes great pains to give as many evidences and arguments as he could to his fellow Jews that Jesus meets every qualification to be Israel's Messiah. It is as if he, uh, in his mind, was asking the question to his brethren, friends, brothers, what do we know that Messiah has to be? And what do we know that Messiah has to do? Okay, you have those things in mind? Now let me show you from the life and teaching of Jesus that Jesus alone fits the bill right? He is arguing over and over again that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Second, his second purpose, he wanted to explain the kingdom program of God for the present age in light of Israel's rejection of her king. See, every Jew would want to know, they would want to know what would happen to Israel and what would happen to God's promised kingdom in light of the nation's rejection of their king. They would want to know that, right? Was God done with his promised people? Was he done with the Jewish people, with the Jewish nation? Would, would Messiah's kingdom ever come? And if this kingdom had somehow been delayed, what would the kingdom of Messiah look like in the interim? See, Matthew answers these questions by essentially saying, my words, by essentially saying in his gospel, Though the nation has rejected their Messiah and would be judged for it, though they had rejected their Messiah and would be judged for it, the Messianic kingdom would one day be instituted at Jesus Christ's return. In the meantime, believers in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile alike, are to make disciples in all the world during an interim period called the church, in which Jesus reigns from heaven, advancing his spiritual kingdom on earth. Now there's a lot to flesh out, and we'll flesh these out in the days and weeks to come. But let me ask a question. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? This question of audience and purpose, why does it matter for us? Let me suggest a couple reasons why it should matter for us. Number one, first, Matthew teaches us, as all the Gospels do, about the person and work of Jesus for us, right? It is the Gospel according to Matthew, but it's about the person and work of of Jesus. So let me just ask you a very, very simple question, right? A very simple question. Should a Christian find it helpful and beneficial to know better the life and teachings of the one that he or she professes? Shake your head yes at me. 
Yes, absolutely so, right? Of course. So if you say that you're a Christian, but you're really not all that interested in learning about Jesus that you claim to follow, then why do you call yourself a Christian at all, right? If we are truly his disciples, then we should desire at some level to know him better, to discover and to delve more deeply into his life and his ministry and his teachings and his, his resurrection and to immerse ourselves in his words. So friends, we are going to be spending a little bit longer in the Gospel of Matthew than our sermon series typically go. I'm just giving you a warning. This will not be eight weeks. I cannot get through the Gospel of Matthew in eight weeks. It's going to be a little bit longer, right? So friends, let me just ask you. If a a sermon series all about the person and work of Jesus doesn't excite you, if it doesn't stir your spiritual soul, right, And the problem most likely is not with me, and it's most likely not with Jesus. It's likely with you. So my prayer is that as we immerse ourselves in the teachings of Jesus and work our way through this wonderful portrait of who he is, friends, that our appetite would be stirred for him. Number two, it matters because Matthew teaches us about the nature of God's working in the world about the nature of God's working in the world. See, in Matthew, we learn that God still has a plan for Israel and that he's going to keep his promises to his promised people, albeit maybe not in a way that they expected, which also means that he will keep his promises to us, the church. We learn that God now has put a pause on the kingdom program for Israel under a messianic king and is working in the world through his local church, the body of Christ, in which Paul calls a mystery. Several places, Ephesians 3, 6, and others, we see that God is advancing his kingdom. He's advancing his kingdom in this age as believers in a local church make disciples among all the nations. So friends, if you are a Christian this morning, let me ask you another simple question. Do you want to know what God is up to in the world today? What is his program? What is his plan in this age? Don't you want to know it? Don't you want to be a part of it? I do, and I pray that you do as well. So, We've looked at the authorship of Matthew. We've looked at the audience and the purpose of Matthew. Now, let's turn and see a few distinctives of Matthew. In other words, what sets Matthew apart? What makes it a little different in its emphasis and portrayal of Jesus from the other three gospel accounts? What makes it unique? Well, for starters, just start out by saying what we see, and this is overly simplistic, but it's at least a good starting point. The four Gospels portray Jesus in, uh, with different emphases, if you will, but these emphases are not mutually exclusive. So in Matthew, Jesus is portrayed as the king. It's the overarching dominant theme. He is portrayed as the king. In Mark, you could say that he is portrayed as a servant. In Luke, I think it's fair to say he is portrayed as the son of man. And in John, you could say that he is portrayed as the son of God. So overarching point, Jesus is the king. But there are a few other distinctives. Number one, Matthew is distinctively Jewish. It's distinctively Jewish. You cannot miss this when you read through the gospel of Matthew. His writing style. His vocabulary, the the words that, terms that he uses to use, the subject matter are all characteristically Jewish. In fact, the Old Testament is quoted directly some 54 times throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And one, according to one uh, one academic person, uh, he suggests that the Old Testament is actually alluded to and not directly quoted. Are you ready? 262 times. 
262 allusions to the Old Testament, all of which point us to this fact, that this is a distinctly Jewish book. Matthew refers to Jewish customs without explaining them, like the other many of the other gospel writers, to all of which assume a Jewish audience. Number two, it emphasizes Jesus' teachings. Personally, just on a personal note, this is probably one of my favorite characteristics that I enjoy about Matthew. It emphasizes Jesus' teachings. Of all the gospels, Matthew by far contains the most amount of Jesus' words, his teachings, his sermons, his discourses, whatever you want to call them, right? In fact, one scholar estimates that about 60% of the book of Matthew focuses on Jesus' teaching. It is an overwhelming emphasis. So in other words, if you happen to have a red-letter Bible and you read through Matthew, there will be a lot of red, right? His words bleed through the pages in this gospel, and it's fantastic, right? So it contains, from a literary point of view, five major sermons, five major discourses, if you will, And hopefully we can see it on the screen behind me. Five major discourses, if you will. Uh, And each of these, what we see is is there's a pattern that emerges. So each of these discourses are preceded by a story or a narrative, creating this kind of back and forth. You get story, sermon, story, sermon, activity, teachings, right? There's this back and forth that we see emerging in the Gospel of Matthew. And each of the sermon sections ends with the very same words. When Jesus had finished these words. That's how we know that Matthew is going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So I want to show a picture of the the major discourses here that we see in the Gospel of, of Matthew. There are five of them. And what we see is that I think there's a bit of a progression in the subject matter as we take a look at the five major teaching sections in the Gospel of Matthew. So for starters, in, in chapters 5 through 7, we see Jesus' relationship to the law or to the Old Covenant. In chapter 10, we see his relationship with Israel as the gospel of the kingdom is presented. The parables emerge in chapter 13, and they explain the mystery of what happens to the kingdom in light of Israel's rejection. In chapter 18, we see the establishment of the church as Jesus says, I will build my church. And finally, in chapters 24 and 25, he tells us about his second coming. And finally, the establishment of the messianic kingdom. So, Matthew is distinctively Jewish. It emphasizes Jesus' teaching. And third, it is the least chronological. It's the least chronological. So what you will observe from Matthew is that he groups his teachings. He groups his material in often groups of three, five, or seven, be they events or miracles or parables or teachings. And this is an, is, is an indication to us that Matthew at times is not always telling the story in chronological order. In other words, he's taking groups of events and teachings and he's, he's putting them together. He's arranging them in a way to emphasize his point. Certainly, there is some chronology, right? There is a a general flow to what we see in the gospel as Jesus' life is portrayed. Generally speaking, what we see is in chapters 1 through 4, they're chronological. Chapters 5 through 13, generally are topical. And towards the end of the book, 14 through 28, I think kind of jumps back to being chronological chronological again. So all I have to say is we have to keep this in mind as we go through Matthew, is that Matthew's not strictly presenting this happened, then this happened, then this happened. He has a point, and he's making that emphasis as he goes. So let me ask a question again. Why in the world does that matter to us? A a couple reasons, at least. Number one, first, 
we have to understand this gospel, its language, and its references in light of the Old Testament. And I'll try my best to do that as we work our way through it. Because if you read Matthew and you don't understand the Old Testament, we're going to miss quite a bit of what G- uh, Matthew is trying to reveal to us about Jesus. Number two, we must learn from Jesus' teachings, right? Since this gospel contains more red-letter words, if you will, than any other, then friends, this is our opportunity to sink our teeth into it and to savor it and to ponder it and, and to allow the very precious and eternal words of Jesus so little of which I think is actually recorded for us in the Gospels, to transform us and to change us from the inside out. Friends, if we call ourselves a disciple of Jesus, literally a learner of Jesus, here is a great opportunity for us to sink our teeth deep into his sermons and his teachings for our lives. Finally, let's take a look at the structure of the Gospel. How did Matthew arrange or structure his Gospel to confirm to his Jewish audience that Jesus was indeed the Messianic King and to explain the kingdom program of God for the present age in light of Israel's rejection of her king. How did he arrange or structure his gospel in order to make this point? Well, again, Dr. Bailey proposes uh, the following outline, and it's kind of the basic outline that we'll use as we work our way through this sermon series. It's kind of a basic skeletal structure, if you will, on which the muscles and the flesh of Matthew are built. So, first of all, in chapters 1 through 4, we see the person of the king is highlighted. That is, who is he essentially? We see that in the early life of Jesus, which we'll look at in the next couple weeks at Christmas time, in the early ministry of Jesus, the person of the king. In chapters 5 through 7, you could say we see the platform of the king. It is an election year, so there's much talk about platforms, right? So it's, I think, an appropriate word as Jesus records his manifesto, if you will, his program for kingdom living in what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Next, we see chapters 8 through 10. We see the power of the king, right? Jesus' power is emphasized in this section. We see a series of nine miracles. Nine miracles, three sets of three. Three sets of three, and interspersed in those three sections of miracles is Jesus teaching the disciples about what discipleship really is. We see the power of Jesus demonstrated in this section. Next, in chapter 11, running almost to the end of chapter 13, we move from the power of the king to the parables of the king. You can't miss it in this section. It's full of parables. But the parables are actually preceded by several conflicts that Jesus has with the religious leaders. So there's conflict, conflict, conflict with the Jewish religious leaders revealing their rejection of him as their Messiah. And that leads him then to a set or a series of parables. And these parables, in my opinion, explain the nature of the kingdom in light of Israel's leaders' rejection of Jesus as their king. What's going to happen to this kingdom? Because the people of the king are rejecting him. Number five. In chapters 14 through 18, we see what you could say is the progressive rejection of the king, right? The progressive rejection of the king as Matthew sequences uh, more increasingly hostile uh, oppositions to Jesus by the religious leaders primarily. We see that there is a series of oppositions in this section followed by Jesus' response. And it's very similar. There's opposition and then Jesus withdraws. There's opposition and then he withdraws. And as he withdraws, he ministers to the masses by miracle. Opposition, withdraw, 
ministry. Opposition, withdraw, ministry. And in this section, Matthew reveals to us that the people are progressively revealing, uh, rejecting Jesus as their king. Starting in chapter 19 and running all the way through chapter 25. What we see in the Gospel of Matthew is that time slows down and tension rises. Time suddenly goes to a standstill and tension goes through the roof as we have the formal presentation of the king in the triumphant entry, resulting in Jesus's, uh, Israel's rejection of its king, Jesus' rejection of them, and a sermon on the events preceding his second coming which will then establish his kingdom on earth. Finally, the gospel closes with the passion of the king, just as every other gospel does in chapters 26 through 28. The passion of the king, right? His death, his victorious resurrection, culminating is in his great commission to the church to make disciples of all the nations and his ascension into heaven. So what we're going to do is take this gospel of Matthew and these basic seven Uh, separate but related sections. And each of these seven major sections will be a kind of a short sermon series. So here's how I'd like for us to close today with a bit of a a pastoral prayer for this sermon series, beginning with an illustration. Um, I don't know about you, but there are probably some foods in your life experience that uh, you didn't like initially, but that through experience and tasting and repeated exposure, you have come to enjoy. We call that an acquired taste, right? It's an acquired taste. Um, So it may not taste good initially or after several tries, but over time and with continued and repeated exposure, your taste buds eventually adapt, and you go from not really liking a particular food to actually enjoying it and, and savoring that food. So I don't know about you, but for me, avocados were that. Uh, Growing up, I thought it was green mush, and I would not touch it, and it was gross. And at some point in my 20s, I tried uh, some guacamole, and I thought, this is really good. And now I love it. I love avocados, and I love guacamole. I don't know what your uh, acquired taste is. There's all sorts of them out there. But here's the point. Here's the point. Our appetite for the Word of God and particularly for longer books of the Bible, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like this. It's a spiritually acquired taste for some of us. At first, we might get bored being in the same book day after day if we're reading it on our own, or week after week if we're hearing it from the pulpit. So our tendency might be just to stop eating it, right? Just to stop eating it. But through repeated exposure, our appetite for the Word and the longer books of the Word grows. And our spiritual taste buds slowly but surely begin to change. So that after a while, we can't wait to get the next course in that particular book. So friends, this is my prayer for us. It's my prayer for this sermon series, our time in the Gospel of Matthew, that we acquire a taste for an extended exposure to the life and the teachings of Jesus. Friends, would you pray with me now towards that end? Father, we do pray this for each of us individually and for this church corporately, that, Father, as we begin to sink our teeth into the scriptures, in particular, this gospel of Matthew that has so much to teach us about who your son is. Father, may you change our spiritual taste buds accordingly, that we would learn to savor 
it and to see him afresh, to enjoy him anew, and to go deeper in our relationship with him if we have been born again and placed our faith in this king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those who may be here today and may be with us throughout the duration of this sermon series, that if they do not know Jesus as their king, if they have not personally trusted in his gospel, in his perfect life of obedience, which you require of us, and that we could never give to you, he offers it as a gift, his righteousness to us freely. Father, may they receive that gift. But not only that, may they trust in his substitutionary death. He paid the penalty for our sins. He bore your wrath as we deserved it. And he rose again to offer us new and eternal life. Father, if there's a a man or a woman or boy or girl and they have not trusted in Jesus as their Savior and then begun to follow him as their Lord, may they do that even now. May they call upon him and be saved. Father, for those of us who have, may we enjoy this journey of discovering the person and work of the Savior we claim. And it's in his name that we pray, the name above all names, the name of Jesus and God's people together said, amen. Amen. See you next week, guys.